Welcome to the podcast, Think Biblically, conversations on faith and culture. I'm your host, Sean McDowell, professor of apologetics at Talbot School of Theology, Biola University. We have a guest today that I can't believe we have not had on yet, (laughs) even though we've been doing this podcast a year and a half, have wanted to have our guest on for a long time. One of the leading apologists today, a friend, mentor of mine, huge friend of Biola. In fact, you teach with me. That's adjunct right. at the uh, apologetics program at That's Talbot. That's right. I spent many years there as a master's uh, candidate uh, in the MA Phil program, too. Too many years, probably. 13. We, ha- we had classes together. <laughs> we did. In the early 2000s. Now, in case you don't recognize his voice yet, this is Greg Kokel is my guest. And you might recognize his voice because he has he's the president of Standard Reason and has a long-going radio show now, a podcast, that is one of the best apologetic podcasts that are out there. So if you haven't listened to his yet, hit pause, go to Standard Reason, <laughs> subscribe to it. Yeah. Regardless. STR.org. STR.org. Regardless of that, Greg, thanks for coming on. Sure. Yeah, it's always a treat to chat with you. Now, we could talk about your book, Tactics, Mm -hmm. which you talk about how you have practical conversations with people about the faith. We could talk about relativism, your more recent book, The Story of Reality. Uh You get calls every week, and you can wrestle with a number of issues, theologically, ethically, culturally. I want to kind of peer behind the curtain a little bit and just give our listeners a sense of who you are, your journey of faith, and some life stories you've learned along the way. Okay. So maybe just start by telling us you didn't you weren't raised in a Christian family. No, I was actually raised in a Roman Catholic family, but like a lot of uh, in the fifties, I was born in nineteen fifty, and so I went to uh, high school and began college in the sixties in that turbulent time. When I uh, was about a senior, that's when I kind of uh, let go of whatever religious trappings that I had from senior the past. In high school. Senior in high school. That's right. And, of course, when you're 18 in the 60s, the mid-60s, the last thing you want to think about is, you know, purity and and religion and God looking over your shoulder. Hmm. Uh, I guess it's the same nowadays, too. But the things that were happening in the culture were uh, pretty monumental then, a lot Hmm. of shifting and changing. And so I embraced the the thought forms of the day, which were relativistic. Uh, I was against the war in Vietnam. I was actually in the Army at the time, but I was still against the war in Vietnam, which everybody was who was in college. It was part of the, it wasn't thoughtful, but it, it was just what everybody did. You know, when mm. you're a certain set, like in college, everybody, it's a, it's group think kind of deal. Yep. Uh, but it wasn't until a few years later uh, into the early seventies that my younger brother, who was more the jock of the fam- family, the boys, you know, we were all in sports, but he was the one uh, was most accomplished, but he ended up becoming a, a, a Jesus follower during the Jesus movement. And yeah. I was very dismissive of it at first because because I thought I was too smart for that. Um, and I was the only one of the five children to go to college. And uh, I was in an honors program at Michigan State University at the time. And it was, uh, so I figured, you know, I've got this all worked out. I don't need this Jesus stuff. But um, as it turned out, I ended up moving to the West Coast. And my brother Mark was out here at the same time in the 1973-ish. And uh, that's when he he really turned on the, on the heat. And uh, what I think is important about this, there's a couple of things I just wanted to point out. I'm, I'm rushing through just a little bit, but to, I want to hit some points that I think your listeners uh, would, would care about. And one of them is it was my younger brother who led me to Christ. Wow. So family circumstances sometimes are tough. And oftentimes it's an outsider that gets at a family member you care about because they don't respect you and your testimony. So I understand there's difficulty there. But in my case, it turned out that Mark was the one that not only led me to Christ, but was instrumental in leading every 
member of our family to every a sibling at least all, wow. all four of the others over time wow. took a while so that's one thing second thing what what i think unique for people who do what we do uh, is that a lot of our colleagues um jay warner wallace for example you know and starts out an atheist and then he examines the evidence and the apologetics are instrumental same thing with your dad mm-hmm. uh to bringing them to christ there was no role of apologetics in my life uh in coming to Christ. Wow, I it, did not know that. Yeah, it was not it was a, not an issue. Uh, it was a um, soon after, of course, I discovered evidence uh, and uh, in, in read Francis Schaeffer and C.S. Lewis, and <clears throat> but for me in that circumstance, even though I had objections to Christianity, the mm-hmm. standard things that people raise up, it wasn't that that brought me to Christ. All I could say is this: Mark prevailed upon me with the gospel, explaining the gospel and being a Roman Catholic, um, there was a detail there that that is something I had no access to as a Roman Catholic, and that is confidence of salvation. You can't know you're saved, mm. not on their view, it, because who could know that? You know, It strikes me now when I look back on it, how could that possibly be good news then if you have no idea what's going to happen to you when you're dead? It's good news because there's confidence we can have. And this was something I hadn't heard, forgiveness. A one-time final, there it is. You trust Christ and you're you're covered. And I don't mean to speak frivolously of that. I mean to speak confidently of it. He secures Mm. you. He does what's necessary to rescue. One sacrifice for all time. He has sanctified those who believe. You know, it's Hebrews 10 stuff. So that just all settled in. And I had never heard the gospel of grace and forgiveness like that before. And I think over uh, over time that just wore me down. And then I, then I, I... I told my brother, he came to visit me once, and I said, you don't have to tell me anymore. I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm ready to become a Christian. And I, there's a, I have a suspicion that I'd probably actually de facto been born again to be just before that night that I prayed. I'm not sure how that works in God's whole thing, but I did say a prayer on September 28, 1973. And, wow. and that's when I formally, in a sense, started walking with Christ. So what advice do you have for Christians with family members who are not to navigate the truth in the gospel and relationships? Well, in a way, it's not super profound. The first thing is be nice. <laughs> That's great. Today, that's you know, profound. <laughs> be nice. I mean, you want to be really careful. I, I know when we started out, my brother Dave, who's four years my junior, Mark is two years younger than me, that we all started, in a sense, walking with the Lord. Dave came out to the California, the three Coco brothers were all together mm-hmm. there, just four years apart, all three of us. And so it was kind of, and we were all fairly new in Christ, and we we're really excited. But we ended up walking on a lot of people, you know, especially mm-hmm. me, because I was so energetic and ambitious and, uh, <laughs> you know, just overflowing with. So uh, I think just settle down and relax, and okay. you've got a lifetime, really, with your family members, re- realistically speaking. My dad was a really tough guy, and he ended up becoming Christian uh, two years before he died at 71 years old. Wow. Almost, uh, he just turned 72. And um, he was very dismissive of, of our of, of the boys when we, we became Christians, very dismissive of it. and uh, But he ended up becoming a Christian because of the influence of his older sister, my aunt, Bernie, in his life. Uh, so... So in that situation, it wasn't a family member who brought my dad in, not 
our family, it was his sister that was really most instrumental. And that's a whole nother story. But so uh, what what was important for us, and I don't know how good we did this, but looking back at it, is to just be nice, to be good, mm. to be good examples of Christians mm. and followers of Christ, but also be ready to to give an answer, to, to mm. make a defense, to even explain the gospel in terms that people can mm. understand. So if apologetics played essentially zero role in your faith conversion, right. what's your passion to doing apologetics and starting this ministry stand reason, sure. which equips Christians, exactly. but also equips Christians to have conversations with non-believers. So right. it's discipleship and evangelism. Yeah. Where does that passion come from? Well, well, two things happened early on. I became a Christian in September 73 in... Uh, Let's see, February 74, I moved into a Christian community um, in Westwood Village. And that, well, there were people that. You what know, does that mean, Christian okay, community? Okay, it, it was a fraternity house that okay. had been changed into a, uh, like a, well, a Christian community. It's a, there was a school called the Jesus Christ Light and Powerhouse, kind yeah. of a corny name. Yeah. But uh, one of the, and they were a bunch of um, people, guys basically who had uh, all left. Bill Bright's Campus Crusade at the same time, mm-hmm. you know, they all, and they started their own thing. So these guys had a lot of experience on campus. Uh, they, most of them were DTS grads and uh, they were sharp people, but they also had street smarts. And one of them mm-hmm. was Dick Day, who was as instrumental yes. in discipling your dad That's right. way back when. And, uh, and, and I entered into a discipleship relationship very soon with uh, a fellow named Craig Englert, who has now been pastoring 30 years in Maui, but he had been instrumental in the Jesus movement there. And so here I am in this environment, living in this community with uh, learning the Bible. You know, we had Bible classes all morning and then we had afternoons free, take a job or do whatever we do. But it Mm -hmm. was... It was really a magnificent experience. I was just just 23 years old. I was a brand new Christian. It was Christians all around me uh, investing in me in these classes and stuff, then spending a lot of personal time with Craig Engler. And I think that's when I really began to, um, it's his personal investment that made such a difference in setting the trajectory on my life and, and gave me this deep commitment to discipleship. Mm-hmm. And over the years, you know, having groups uh, that, that I spend d- direct time with as a group, maybe for a year or something. Other times, just individuals that I traffic with, you know, I try to encourage. And I realized, <clears throat> and it wasn't really until probably three or four years ago, Sean, now it's almost 26 years would stand to reason, but I realized th- reflectively now that what Stand to Reason is about is principally about discipleship Hmm. because our mission statement from very early on starts out we train Christians we in other words we're working with believers we're not evangelistic we're not like Ravi Zacharias or other organizations crusade a lot of discipleship a lot of evangelism too we were uh, my interest was in building the body of Christ because I figured if I can build individual Christians, that could leverage my impact in, mm-hmm. into, in, in an evangelistic way. Yep. Sometimes, uh, this may sound strange to you, I don't know if I've ever talked to you about this, but um, I occasionally we get, you know, people f- imagine things about you, so then they work them into the introductions. And so people would say, and here's Greg Kokel, and he's, such, he's got such a heart for the lost, you know, he'll say something <laughs> like this. It's very sweet and everything, but I would never characterize myself that way. Interesting. I wouldn't say that I have a heart for the lost. I have a heart for the body of Christ and for discipleship. And um, that's kind of where my niche is. And of course, this is all 
part of the larger project of God working to build the kingdom of God, which includes bringing the lost in that, and glorifying you know, all kinds of other things. Yep. But 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 I I like the building of of Christians. The event, the apologetic stuff started out for me um, twofold. First of all, when I became a Christian, there was a lot of evangelism because I'm on the streets of Westwood Village there where UCLA is at. I was a student there at the time. Hmm. And uh, all kinds of crazy things are going on in the early 70s, spiritually speaking. Everybody's talking about their trip on the street. So I'm in the action too. And I got to figure out ways to make sense of my own view. Hmm. I get asked questions. I got to answer. So this is what got me interested. Plus that first community, there was a lot of emphasis on apologetics because of Dick's uh, role with your dad. I mean, yeah. that whole, oh, whole yeah. thing there. And I actually saw your dad speak at UCLA when I was. Oh my goodness. Yeah. It's so amazing because That's last awesome. night your dad went first and I went second That's on right. the same stage, you know, in this event we're wow. at right now. But uh, I don't think he even knows that. But uh, 45 years ago at UCLA, I went to an event and saw him do his, do a presentation at UCLA and answer questions and everything. It was really amazing but uh so i i need this for conversing with other people but it also is something that really built my own conviction stronger and stronger and stronger gotcha and one of my main uh people that I read was deeply influenced by was Francis Schaeffer. Mm. And I remember I can even picture it in my mind's eye sitting at my desk there in that old fraternity house looking out over Westwood Village, you know, through the window and I'm reading Francis Schaeffer and there's something powerful. And and what I was thinking is, oh my gosh, this stuff is really, really, really true. (laughs) You know, that's what, that's what I said to myself. Now I was a follower of Christ. I, I, I moved into this community. I mean, but there was a there was a much deeper sense of conviction, confidence that that took hold of my heart. Was it like as a personally of, true to like cosmically true? Yeah, like yeah, I see like it true, in true, ways true, that, that I sort of what Schaefer used to yeah, call true truth. You that's know? right. And um, and I don't know. It it wasn't as if I was thinking merely subjectively about the truthfulness. Okay, sure. now I, I'm in my sure. club here. I'm out there going face to face with people who don't like this message at all. So I'm paying a price because I think it's actually so. So it wasn't like I was going from subjective to objective. All I could, I, the only way I could explain it is, though I thought it was objectively true, maybe I was taking a step from believing to knowing. In other words, I have enough confidence that it's so, that I believe it's right. so, that I can step out. But you know how you get more information about something and then, you know, more justification for you. Yep. Then it starts to flow, move into the knowledge. Okay, this is really, yep. okay, I know this is the case for these reasons. And this is what apologetics really helped me. So you felt that in your life and thought, I want to help the rest of the church really have this power to live their life, do their profession, do evangelism from within the church. Yeah, I I, I don't know that it was, I think what you're saying is true, but I don't think it was, I I thought it through very much early on. Uh, what I did want to do is I wanted to bloom where I was planted is the words that I use yep. now. Yep. I wanted to make a difference for Christ where I was at. Okay. And um, I remember uh, I was probably a year, not even a year old in the Lord. And I remember telling my disciple or Craig that uh, I don't ever want to have any secular job ever in my life. I want to just keep working for the kingdom. Now, I laugh at this because it took me about 10 or 12 years to end up... <laughs> 
getting out of secular work of some sort. And, right, work, right. and it's, that wasn't God's purpose for me. Sovereignly, sure. he needed to know I get, I, he knew that I needed to get my butt kicked up down the street for a decade mm. before I was going to be very useful to him. Mm. Okay. And that's another important part of the process, yep. you know, but, uh, but that was my sentiment. And what was I going to do? Well, I can use the gifts that I have. So I had no broad vision at all. Gotcha. But it's only now as I look back, and like I said, only in the last three or four years that I've been thinking, yeah, you know, I have been committed to discipleship uh, for most of my life. This is why I've had these different groups of people, and this is why I, I know about that. And now I think about what Stand to Reason has been is really a big effort of that discipleship to train Christians. And even our vision now is confidence for every Christian. Confidence for every. That makes I sense. mean, that's that's start. That's a, hmm. one part of a three-part vision: confidence for every Christian, clear thinking for every challenge, and courage and grace for every encounter. Hmm. So, but that confidence for every Christian that goes right back to when I was sitting there reading Francis Schaeffer. You wow. know, wow. that really helped me. And so again. It's easier to kind of tease these things out when you look back over a lifetime yep. of these things happening. But for me, I didn't have a big giant plan. I, I, I just was kind of following my nose, the next step. Well, what can I do here? I can do this. I can do that. So is this true for tactics as well? Because I think one of the, I think, most powerful contributions that you make on your podcast, when I listen to it, and I still do, by the <laughs> way, you. is I'm not always listening to what you're saying. I'm listening to how you think through and answer and unpack a question, all the assumption behind it, yeah. so people make sure they grasp, here's how you arrived at this here's how it works. answer. Yeah, yeah. Is this just an extension of the way you're wired. Where does this come from? Because you really clarified it in the book Tactics. Mm -hmm. And it's one of the most helpful must-read books for (laughs) Christians to learn how to navigate spiritual conversations. A lot of people don't approach it that way. Is it just your wiring, spiritual gift, experience? uh, To me, I, I, I don't... I don't even divide it out that I think uh, spiritual gifts and natural gifts are both things from God. And he uses our experiences. He's sovereign in my life before I even became a follower of Jesus and all that. So I think that all kind of blends together. Sure. I wanted people not just to get right answers. And this is part of Stand to Reason. You've probably heard this before. We don't want to, to just tell people what to think. We want to teach them how to think. Exactly. And so by stepping through the process uh, of how I get there, it, it, it then shows people... Um, how that thinking process works. And to some degree, I think there's some native capabilities here that have helped. But I, I, was, I was helped tremendously by people like J.P. Moreland and mm. the M.A. Phil program. I got a Master mm. in Apologetics first, and then I went, and I, I kind of made reference to it a few moments ago. I was 13 years in that <laughs> M.A. program, which you're probably not supposed to be in it that long, but we were bringing lots of the people into the program and out of the program at the same time, so they had a lot of patience with me as we were doing Stand to Reason while I was working on that but the, that whole enterprise uh, with JP and, the, and and Doug and Guy Vitt and, and, and Scott Ray and the whole crowd the yeah. the team our family our colleagues over there really helped me in the process of thinking how to make distinctions and how to tease out things that really mm. are important to keep us from being confused so that added to my in a sense skill set makes sense and this allowed me then to be more almost pedantic about about it when I'm talking. We can say, no, we're going from here to here yep. to here to here. Yep. But my experience has been by stepping carefully through those things, it becomes an, another discipleship or mentoring of the people that are listening. It, it definitely is. 
So you've done radio how many years now? I'm in my 29th year. 29th year. So yeah. I don't know if you've ever gone back and tabulated how much time that is or roughly how many no, questions <laughs> you've been asked. Huh. That would kind of be interesting to yeah. estimate. Yeah. But what are the hardest questions? It could be emotionally, experientially, yeah. intellectually. Like what are those questions where you just feel like, I don't, this is the least satisfying answer I have. It doesn't make me question Christianity because yeah. of everything else. Right. But are there one or two where you go, no, oh, yeah, these are just I, tough Sure, questions. and I'm candid about this on the air. I think that the, the hardest issues, generally speaking, are theological, and they're not apologetics. Hmm. And uh, for all the kinds of challenges people might raise apologetically regarding the Bible or God's existence or any of those kinds of things, uh, there's always a question in the back of my mind. And the, the question in the back of my mind is, what's the alternative? Because you, mm. you can't sit in the fence when it comes to worldviews. You, you, you're either one place or another. And I know people are sometimes uncertain, that's agnostic about particular things. But the, the point I'm making is if you reject Christianity as an adequate picture of reality or view of the way the world actually is, that characterization of reality, then you have to adopt something else. And the, whatever else that you adopt is going to be a whole lot messier than Christianity mm. because Christianity does the best job of, of it's the best explanation for the way things are, I think mm. is the way I put it to my daughter once. So, um, so those particular, there are problems that, that uh, people raise, and, and some things I'm much more comfortable with than other things. Um, I think Old Testament stuff, um, even yesterday when you were answering, uh, no, it was like three days ago. When Wednesday you were at my, night at your yeah, church. At my church. <laughs> That's right. So uh, here we are in Seattle, but we're also together in, in, in L.A. A couple For listeners, ago. we're in an apologetist conference together recording this on the road. That's right. In Bellevue. Right. So and three going. days ago, we were at an, another conference where I was in the audience and it That's was my right. church. And, That's and, right. And Sean was uh, talking. But I think uh, trying to validate the Old Testament mm. um, kind of independently is hard because of the antiquity of it. Yep. But I think your approach was validating the New Testament, and that validates Jesus. And then we look at what Jesus' view of the Old Testament was. And so I think there's a legitimate thing, too, there. And I think your dad said something. I Actually, I took notes on this last night. I'd never heard this before. How do we know that the prophecies that were fulfilled in the life mm. of Christ— antedated him. I'd always gone back to the Dead Sea Scrolls because we have a lot of that in Isaiah and we know the dates of that and everything. He, he said, we have the Septuagint, which is 200 That's years right. That's before right. the time of Christ, the Greek Old Testament recording all of that. Huh. I thought, oh man, that's fabulous. That's so, so those are, those are ways to argue that, but that is a little less tidy, I think, than, than what we'd like. The New Testament, we can hmm. do a lot more with. So that I think is a little bit troublesome. Um, I think the, uh, the, the harder ones, though, that the theological ones are, is the difficulty for me of, of the concept of original sin and our responsibility for the sin that someone else committed, Adam and Eve, and how we participate in that. It just came up on the radio for me last week, yes. I think. And uh, there are two classical answers. You know, we were in Adam, and so we participated. That's yep. one way. Or that he was the federal head, mm -hmm. and he was acting for the human race, which is the which is the view that I that I hold and is in the book, The Story of Reality. But I think both of those are not um, emotionally satisfying for me. Hmm. And, um, and I've said this before. So one of the things, though, this is a subtext here. I, I want Christians to feel comfortable with saying that there are things about what they know about God and the Bible that are not tidy, that may not be satisfying, and that we don't know the answers for. Uh, this isn't a problem with Christianity. This is a problem with being human. Hmm. This is a problem with reality. Everything's untidy. 
Every mm. view is untidy in some ways. We have limits in our ability to know. Mm. And we have all kinds of other things that are going on, biases and stuff that influence it. So we shouldn't be surprised when we run into things that are a little bit troubling. I love that, especially coming from you, one of the people I look to for answers <laughs> frequently. That's encouraging to me. And I know both of us saying that can be, yeah. be meaningful. That's a part of life. Yeah. So... What motivates you? And by that, I mean, you've had standard reason, I think you said 26 years. It'll next, let's see, in, in a couple of days, three or three or four days, three days, it'll be 26 years. That's 26 right. years. So by the time people listen to this, it'll be 26 years. Yeah, that's right. And you, you continue to write, continue to speak. I heard my dad say something on stage. He's done this almost five decades right. with crew. And he said, you know what still motivates me is I think about the, the people that my grandkids are going to marry someday if they get oh, married. And I thought, oh my goodness, yeah. like I hadn't put myself at that stage, sure. what continues to motivate him. Sure. So you don't have to have a deep answer like no, that. That wasn't yeah. my point, but what still <laughs> wakes you up? What gets you excited? What motivates you to keep doing what you're doing? Um, well, I'll tell you what comes to mind. And this has come to mind many times for me. And uh, it's just, it's just the words, well done, good and mm. faithful servant. Hmm. That's it. That's it. I just hmm. want to hear that. You know, I want hmm. my father in heaven um, to say that to me. I want to finish the course. Uh, I want to take the things, whatever they have that, 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 that I have that have been entrusted to me. Uh, Paul tells Timothy in Second Timothy chapter 1, guard that which has been mm. entrusted to you. Okay, so I feel that this baton has been passed to me, it's been entrusted to me. I want to carry it well. For as long as I can carry it, and then I'll pass it on to somebody else, and and then and go be with the Lord. So I that's I don't think about you know all these people getting saved. I don't. That's God's business. He cares more about it than mm. I do. You know, I I I want to have I want like having an impact in somebody's life. So if I can have an impact in someone's life and they pay it forward, that's the best the best compliment that I could be given. I, I don't have to. I don't need all kind of strokes and stuff. You know, mm. and I probably get more attention than than I deserve or is good for me already. But one nice thing about radio is you don't have a big audience in front of you. You're just doing your thing, and, you, and then you let God take care of it from there, mm. just like we're doing now. And mm. then he multiplies it kind of like loaves and fishes. You know, it just, just goes out there and feeds the multitudes. And I'm, that, I'm glad. And sometimes people tell me, you know, generations sure. removed from sure. me, how God has used that in their life. When I say generations, I mean spiritual generations, sure. you know, sure. the, the reverberating effect of that. But, mm. um, but the thing that just, I just want to, I just want to be faithful. I just want to just keep doing it. This is the only thing I can really control. I, I love it. I, I can't control how many people I, 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 whose lives I change. I can't control. I can't even control if my, my kids are happy with me, you know, or my wife <laughs> with me, you know. Uh, anybody's happy for that matter, even mm. the ones closest to me. What I can control is what I do. And I, I, I work hard to try to be faithful with that. We had Os Guinness on a few episodes back, and he said the idea of legacy is a secular idea. Hmm. Christians should be motivated by hearing the words, well done, oh, my really? good and faithful yeah. servant. He said the yeah. same thing, and that really stuck with me. Yeah. I call it an audience of one. And it's I just great. actually wrote recently on it with some material that's going out to, for Stand a Reason. But it, it's uh, it. it, it like I was saying before, you, you can't guarantee that people are going to be happy with you. You can't play for the crowd. You know who played for the crowd? Pilate played for the crowd. Mm. Pa uh, played for them. Mm. Uh, Mark fifteen fifteen, uh, seeking to satisfy the crowd. Mm. He released Barabbas and had Jesus scourged and crucified. That's what mm. it says. I don't want to be on his team. 
That's a great answer. We have time for maybe one, one or two more. But I, I'm curious. You've been doing this longer than I have. What are the, how have the questions people are asking changed in the mm-hmm. time you've been doing evangelism, apologetics, radio? And what are the big questions or you see where this is going? See, I'm going to give a different answer than some, some people. For one, um, I, it isn't like I'm on the line answering non-Christians questions all the time. Sure. Okay. So, yeah, so that's one, just so people know. I, I answer a lot of questions on the radio, but most of the time they're Christians who are navigating with non-Christians. The second thing is, and this is deeply influenced by Francis Schaeffer, human beings are still human beings. They're made in the image of God. And they have to Amen. live in the world that God made. I think you mentioned this last night uh, in one of your presentations. It, it's, this is a reality of it, and this helps stabilize me. It keeps me from being t- tossed <laughs> to and fro with every wind and wave of culture. Yeah. You know, oh, which generation is this now? We just had Z. We just ran out of letters. I don't know where we're going to go next. See, I don't give a lot of thought to that. This is something mm. that you're much better at. And, and uh, Brett Kunkel, for example, John Stone Street, you're trafficked more in those trendy things. My, my, I can't keep up with all of that, basically. And so my, my thinking is human beings are still, they have this existential need. They know they're broken. They know they're sinful. They mm. know the world's broken. And, and, and they still have the kind, same kinds of objections. They, the postmodern thing is a veneer. Everybody is a modern, is it, it, everybody really deep down in their heart is a common sense realist. That is, they know there is truth in the world. We are truth seekers by nature. But when it comes to certain claims about ultimate reality, Christianity, for example, religious, spiritual things, then people have pushbacks. And that's why they ask questions. And you know this as well as I do, even with all the postmodern noise out there. Uh, it's, it's unanswered questions that are keeping a lot of people hmm. from uh, young people, especially from Christianity. So in a certain sense, that task hasn't changed too much. There are some new boutique things going on with the gender issues and all of that, you know, but this too shall pass and it'll be something else. What's being expressed there are two things, I think, is a deep hunger for significance and acceptance, but also a deep desire to be autonomous. Hmm. So you've got a, a hunger for being part of God's family and also a desire to be your own person. And those things are fighting each other, of course, and those hmm. are all part of what it means to be human in a broken and fallen world. It's, it's a great answer. When I do a talk on Gen Z, I talk about the studies and trends and beliefs, but I always begin by saying these stats are only going to take us so far. And then I'll say second, I'll say, and keep in mind, you have much more in common with this generation mm-hmm. than you do differences. Human nature transcends you know, individual trends that are going That's on. Right, right. Now, there's timely questions that questions like certain gender questions yeah. seem to really be timely now. But then there's timeless questions yeah. that will never, ever change. Well, uh, just to give you an example of this, I don't know how often you go on Amazon to see where your books are rated. Every once in a while, I take a look at I, the I take a look. And, I want to yeah, know. That's right. <laughs> so you look at the, you know, the top apologetics books and something. You look at the top 10, and I guarantee you, no matter when you check it, one author will have at least three titles in there. C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis. Yep. Okay. What, Mere Christianity right. was written in uh, like the year I was born. 
1950 or right around 51. I thought it was the 40s. I didn't think you were Well, he did the radio shows in the 40s, but I think it was published (laughs) in 51, so I got you there. But you're right. See, this is like like 70 years ago, and this guy is still pounding him off right there at the top of the list in apologetics. Like, he doesn't know postmodern from what, you know? He doesn't know gender this, that, and the other thing. But the guy understands the truth, and he's able to communicate it in an attractive, insightful fashion. And so he survived the, the, the test of time, and people are still being transformed by what God's doing in him. Great. That's a great word. I had so many more questions I want to ask you about <laughs> your book, Relativism, which you wrote roughly two decades ago, right? Yeah, was it was 1998. 90, so 98. a little more than two with Dr. It's Frank Beckwith. It's still right? so timely. Yeah, your book, Tactics, our listeners, if they haven't got it, need to pick it up. And more recently, maybe we'll have you back on to talk about the story yeah. of reality. Yeah, I'd like to do both, actually, uh, come back on Tactics, because in November... Uh, the ex- revised and expanded edition, yes. 40% new material is coming out. So I'm really excited about the tactics. We'll have you back and we'll walk through the particulars of that and yeah, the update. I'll look forward to it. Thanks so much for coming on. Great talking with you, Sean. This has been an episode of the podcast, Think Biblically, conversations on faith and culture. To learn more about us and today's guest, Greg Kokel, and to find more episodes, go to biola.edu forward slash thinkbiblically. That's biola.edu forward slash thinkbiblically. If you enjoyed today's conversation, give us a rating on your podcast app and share it with a friend. Thanks for listening. And remember, think biblically about everything.